Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of worship and now of opening the Word of God given to us, asking, please, Lord, uh, speak to our hearts and teach us, teach us how to think um, biblically, how to appropriate the message. Uh, come, Holy Spirit, please teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. My favorite preacher of the 20th century is a man named Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dr. Jones was a physician from Wales, trained, uh, practicing, uh, one of the physicians to the royal family. His career was on a rocket booster going up, and in the middle of his medical career, he felt the Lord was calling him to be a preacher. And so he left medicine and became a pastor. He taught for 30 plus years, almost four years at a place called Westminster Chapel in London. Well known, died in 1981. Uh, Lloyd-Jones sermons are put in books. His sermons on Ephesians are six volumes, which is way too much, but that's six volumes. He would preach on one word out of a whole verse and book of Romans, eight volumes. And he had a little volume on Second Peter, the book we're studying. And I read it years ago and really forgot I had it. And I was looking through my library and saw, oh, there's Second Peter. I wonder what the doctor, is what they call him, the doctor said about the passage that we're covering today, which is a weighty, difficult, hard to understand passage. It's very, very, very weighty. And so I pulled down Lloyd-Jones on 2 Peter, who spent six volumes in Ephesians. And as I read open the volume, his sermon on 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 is there. And then there is a gap until the next sermon is 2 Peter 3.1. He, he just jumps the whole part here. He just leapfrogs over it. And I thought, well, maybe there's a method to your madness because this is a tough passage. We're studying false teachers, and we said the false teachers, according to 2 Peter, come from among the church members. They deny central teachings, even denying the master who bought them on the cross, denying the reality of the cross. They entice people by sensuality and greed, and it says in chapter 2, verse 2, that many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So they will mislead fellow professing Christians. And last week, we were in chapter 2 and verse 19 that says this, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever has enslaved, or whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And so Peter's going to great lengths to say, you know, you become like the people you listen to. Don't go there. Be very, very careful. Be very much filled with deep sobriety. And I thought about that compared to one of my favorite New Testament words from which we get a word hygiene, which means, uh, which is the word sound. In, for example, 1 Timothy, Paul uses the word Sound. First and Second Timothy, just a couple of times, I'm going to show you how he uses it. But sound means life-giving, life-enhancing, life-transforming, health-producing. We get our word hygiene from this Greek word. He says in chapter 1, verse 10 of First Timothy, he says you know, that 
this is for sexually immoral men, men who practice homosexuality, evil or enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Life-giving, life-enhancing, life-producing, makes-you-sing doctrine. Chapter 4, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Life-producing, happy doctrine. 1 Timothy 6, 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So see, sound, the, the teaching of Jesus, sound words. Or 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So, so this sound, I want that soundness. I want the life-producing, joy-instilling, singing, happy-producing teaching of the Bible that is sound and glorious. And so we weigh these things out. And the question is, how was this life produced? This is interesting. There's a man named J. Gresham Mason who died in 1937 at the age of 55. Mason came from a very wealthy family in Baltimore, came to faith in his early 20s, after being trained at Johns Hopkins, received his master's and the equivalent of a PhD, and taught New Testament theology at Princeton Seminary for almost three decades. Before that, school started drifting to the left, and he started Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. But he wrote a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism, which is an incredibly good and, and pretty easy read. This is what Mason says. This is, this is, the guy. He's, this is a very bright, bright academic guy. He says, how is the Christian life produced in a person? question mark. And he says this. In the early Greco-Roman world, we had cynics and Stoics who would go from city to city just exhorting and telling people what to do, what not to do, and what not to do, what not to do. And then he says this. The strange thing about Christianity was that it adopted an entirely different method. It transformed the lives of men not by appealing to the human will, but by telling a story. Not by exhortation, but by the narration of an event. It is no wonder that such a method seems strange. Could anything be more impractical than the attempt to influence conduct by rehearsing events concerning the death of a religious teacher? That is what Paul called the foolishness of the preaching of the cross. Close quote. It seemed foolish to the ancient world, and it seems foolish to the teachers today. But the strange thing is that it works. The effects of it appear even in this world where the most eloquent exhortation fails the simple story of an event succeeds. The lives of men are transformed by a piece of news. Close quote. And what Mason is saying is that men and women are transformed as we constantly rehearse and remember the great things that Christ has done for us in his supernatural birth, perfect life, death on the cross, resurrection of the day, and dead and ascension into heaven. And, and, and that's what we build our lives around. That's the foundation that we live in. And as we rehearse that story and sing that story and learn that story, our lives sing with soundness and joy, and purpose. And Peter is pleading with these first century believers to be very careful. And then he gives this teaching about departing from faith. 
And it's a difficult passage. Let me tell you, it's a hard passage. Verses 20 and 21. This is what he says. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Wow. And so you read that and you, you say this. Does this passage teach you can forfeit your salvation or lose your salvation? Here's my answer. No. no some people say yes. But I, I say no. And I'm going to try to prove that to you this morning. I, I say no because Scripture interprets Scripture. You have to read it in context. For example, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 Verses 4 and 5, Peter says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, to obtain inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade away, here it is, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last day. There it is. Imperishable, imperishable undefiled, will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. So, so if you're truly in the Lord, you're in the Lord. You're his forever. And I'm going to talk about that. And then he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, you have obtained a faith of equal standing with that of the apostles by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see the faith of, of, of equal standing. And then he goes on and says this. It's an incredible statement. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he's given his, us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. See, so... You, believer, participate in the divine nature. You are becoming like Jesus in your own circle of influence and the way God uses your own unique personality. He's changing you. So I, I want you to rejoice that you're saved by faith alone, through the work of the cross alone, to the glory of God alone. Don't ever muddy that. And, and that you are complete in Christ, that you are in him. That we rejoice, for example, in John 6, 38, where Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. God has given to Christ a vast host of people called the church. And he says in John chapter 10, the great passage about this Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So I want, I want you to rejoice and be glad of that. And that's probably next week primarily. But, 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 but 
We're saved by faith alone through the work of Christ alone. And yet, here's where the problem gets in. In this passage, Peter says, if you have escaped the defilements of the world through your knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in them and overcome, it, would, it is... Uh, the last date is worse than the first. It'd be better for you to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to you. So what in the world does that mean? Here's what I think it means. There is a knowledge that is true and saving that leads us to the greatness of Christ. And then there's what you can call a rudimentary cultural, family knowledge that is covered with a Christian veneer, but it's not a knowledge that leads to faith in Jesus. You've got to get hold of that. And I'll give you an example. Me. I was raised in a small town in North Carolina. When I entered the sixth grade in 1960, excuse me, the first grade in 1960, I was in the first grade six years, but that's beside the point. <laughs> when I in the first grade in 1960, our small town, 1953-54 was a very fertile year. There are a lot of kids my age. There are about 90 kids my age in the first grade. To my knowledge, there was one, one from a broken family. We were conservative. Divorce was frowned on. Sexuality outside of marriage was frowned on. Drinking was frowned on. Drinking was like, whoa, you don't do that. I mean, that's, you go straight to hell if you drink anything, you know, that type of thing. That's, that's the culture I was raised in. And so I had all these conservative things. And occasionally the name of Jesus was mentioned, but the gospel was never at the forefront. Okay? So, so th th there was a cursory knowledge of these things that carried me along culturally or through family or, or just through the environment, the, the, the cultural environment. But, but, but it was not a, a saving faith. It was a family system or it was an environmentally friendly system, but it wasn't salvific. So if I was, we were writing this passage today, knowledge would be in quotes. It's not true knowledge, it's, it's, it's pseudo-knowledge. That's why I understand this text. So faith is made up of three components. Knowledge, conviction, and repentance, and trust. Knowledge, conviction, repentance, and trust. You've got to know certain facts to trust the Lord. And in understanding facts about God and yourself, there should be a sense of conviction. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and repentance. I'm turning from sin to the Lord, which leads to trust. Well, my, my argument, though, is I look at this paradigm, and this, this paradigm to me is true for saving faith or daily faith. It's true for saving faith if you're coming to Christ for the first time ever. If you've never become a believer, we invite you to come to Jesus today. You understand things about the work of the living God in the person of Christ, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You see that, you recognize that, you turn from that, and you trust Him, which means you, you, you place all that you are upon Him. You cannot do salvation for yourself. So, so to me, saving faith and daily faith are the same thing. So you, get, you, get, 
you go in a greater and more biblically sound way as you get older. So as a young believer, I saw that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That he is indeed the sin bearer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will never perish. I saw that. But as, as, I, as I grew in my faith, I said, man, not only did Jesus die on the cross for my sins, but my sins are completely forgiven by the work of Christ, past, present, and future. And not only are my sins forgiven, I am not just in a position of forgiven, I'm embraced in the family of God. I'm adopted in the family of God. And I have received the Holy Spirit to guide me as I study the Bible and to exalt the name of Jesus and to convict me of sin. And I, and I, have, I have the Word of God that is indeed the Word of God. It's, it's God speaking to me. And I, all these things you just, you, just, you just develop through the years as you understand. So, so trust goes deeper. And, and then you come to a point that he's the great creator God. He made the heavens and the earth. And, and through Jesus, all things were made for him, by him. And, and unto him. And it's just so you start singing and dancing with more joy because you know more of the reality of the God who is good, who's Abba Father, who's triune. And, and, and so you, you just get glad. Years ago, when my kids went to Palmetto Christian Academy, we'd come to chapel and the children would sing this song. And I sing it, I, I just love this song. It goes like this You are my strength when I am weak, you are the treasure that I seek. You're my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I would be a fool. You're my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. As you grow older in the faith, you sing, you're my all in all. You're the treasure that I, I seek. Or we were singing here just a while ago some of these things. Like, wow. We, we sang, who can command the highest praise? Who has the name above all names? You stand alone, I stand amazed, Jesus, only Jesus. And then we went straight into Ferris, Lord Jesus, beautiful Savior, Lord of all nations, Son of God and Son of man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. See, that, 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 to me, you, you, you drill down, and my question to you and to me, are you seeing the beauty and the majesty and the wonder and the goodness and the embrace of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you relishing the Abba Father love of God for you? I want that. So, so, so the life of faith, the life is in the beginning stage or as you grow older, decade after decade, it is knowledge, it is conviction, repentance, and it is trust, embrace, delight. So that there's a true knowledge. And then there's a cultural, non-salvific, carry-along, familiarly knowledge. So let me give you three points. Number one, there will be those who give external signs of conversion, but they will fall away and they will stay away because they're not truly converted. There was a term used in the early church, not early church, in church history, and this is the term, mere professors. Now, let me tell you what happened to me. I was going to seminary for four years in Texas. And uh, first year, I'm reading these books. I've never read much theology. And so I'm reading some of these sermons by some of these old guys. And they would preach sermons talking about the danger of mere professors. I'd read those sermons. I'd say, you know, what do they got against college teachers? 
you know, I mean, they're really down on these professors. And then I asked somebody and they told me, I'm really ashamed of this dense. And they said, that's talking about people, not college professors, it's talking about people who profess to be Christ followers, but really are not. They're called mere, I said, oh, they're called mere professors. They have a knowledge, again, that's environmental. Now, I talk to people frequently, and they'll, uh, not non-Christians, and sometimes I'll meet people or I'll read historically about people who say, you know, one of the greatest things I've ever read, Gandhi said this, Gandhi said, in all of my reading, Mahatma Gandhi, in all of my reading, one of the most wonderful, gracious things I've ever read is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Gandhi never claimed to be a Christian. He was a wonderful man, didn't claim to be a Christian. When I read that, I'm thinking, you know, he must have been reading it in a different version than I read it in. I read the Sermon on the Mount, and it can be very painful. It's not a, hey, let's just walk through this and sing. It is a tough passage. Jesus is laying it out. And the Sermon on the Mount has the scariest passage in the whole Bible, in my opinion. I read it and I shudder every time. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, where Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, many will Say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or, or preach, preach in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity or lawlessness. And so, so Jesus says, There'll be many people. How I many are many? I don't know, but many is more than one. There are going to be many people on the day of judgment who did not, not walk in obedience, who were lawless, and yet they, they preached and they cast out demons and they did many wonderful works in the name of Jesus. And Christ says, I'm going to tell them I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. That scares me. That, that's a scary passage. I, I can't read that and say it's a hallmark moment. It's a put your helmet on and sit beneath your desk moment. So th- that's why the book of Second Peter is, is one of the themes is church be very careful. One of the themes of Second Peter is, is church understand your salvation. And that's why Second Peter chapter 2 verse 10 says... Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never fail, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But you make your calling and you make your election sure. You make sure that you are in faith. Because there's a pseudo-knowledge that's out there that's not saving knowledge and it leads people astray. It's bad. So point number two is this, that the the mere professors are in extreme danger. Again, the phrase uses, the last state is worse for them than the first. 
And then verse 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. I'm going, I'm going what does that mean? Holy Spirit, teach me, what does that mean? Now think what it means is that, that if you're exposed and you make some type of verbal commitment or thought system commitment, it can lead to apathy, despondency, or false assurance. And I'm going to just hit on those very quickly. Apathy, which means, uh, well, I went through that phase. That's my Christian phase. I'm through that. Despondency, well, it doesn't work for me. Or false assurance. You don't embrace the way of righteousness or the holy commandment, a way of living. And you say, well, yeah, I, I haven't done this for years. I haven't been in that for years. But some, somewhere in my background, I was baptized or I was part of a church, and I'm, I'm good with Jesus. That's called false assurance. Let me cover that first, and I'll go to the other two. So, so false assurance says, uh, I'm okay. There's no understanding. This, this is, the Christian life is a way of righteousness. We're saved by faith. Listen, by faith alone. But faith produces fruit. And if there are people that have ongoing disobedience and disregard without repentance and without brokenness, I don't know if, I can't say they're not a believer, but boy, they should really think about Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We all should. They ought to read 2 Peter 1, make a call and, and your election, sure. There's a book called the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 6 is a problem passage. This really deals with the same theme. But to understand Hebrews 6, you've got to go to verses 7 and 8. And this is what verse 7 and 8 says. For ground that drinks the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it has been cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being burned and ends up being destroyed. See, the application of this is that if you produce fruit and keep your repentance, then you're blessed of God. But if you do not, beware. Be very, there's a false assurance. I'm going to talk about assurance of salvation next week. But, but, but there is a, a false assurance. Let's go to apathy and despondency. Let me give you an example. So I've been, I've been pounding on this text. What does this mean? And a few weeks ago, I had the chance. I was with a couple of young men. We were just talking, and I had the opportunity of being hanging out with them. And as I talked to them, uh, one was from a, a, a strong church background. He said, I went to a church that taught the Bible, and I was in youth group, and I went on mission trips and so forth and so on. And the other guy, I started talking to him, and I said, uh, how about you? He says, no. We went to church occasionally on Christmas. Maybe every other year. I said, well, then you're consistent, okay? You went every other year to Christmas, all right? And so we started talking. And when I was, I became a believer, somebody showed me this diagram, and I still use it today when I talk to people. It just kind of got in my brain. The diagram is, is like this. So over, over here is man. Man is made in the image of God. And over on the other side is God. God is Holy, he is unchanging, he is eternal, he's all wise, he's triune, uh, he's God. There's never a time when God was not. And even though man is an Im image bearer and is worthy of Christian respect and love, uh, man is also a sinner. 
The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this, I call this the gulf of sin or whatever. That, that really is two million miles wide. You can't bridge that. Nothing bridge. Good works, giving money, uh, walking on hot coals, praying towards Mecca five times a day, fasting every month during Ramadan, whatever, doesn't, doesn't cross that gap. So man is a sinner and the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. We're all going to die. And then the Bible says, after man dies, he is judged in Hebrews chapter 9. So I said, man, image bear, man, sinner, man faces death and judgment. So we talk about what, what can possibly cross that gap, nothing, nothing. And then I go to, I talk about this. I said, you know, the only thing that crosses the gap is the cross, that in the fullness of time, what we can never do for ourselves, Jesus did for us. When he became a man, the Lamb of God, and he died on the cross for our sins. And the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. So, so we talk about that and the claims of Christ and who Christ is. It's very simple. But then I came up with this. This is something I've kind of added on my own. I say, you know, when I talk to people, they're at one of three positions. Position one is they say, you know, I, I, I'm really not interested. I, I, I'm over here, I'm, I'm a man, and I'm not quite ready to make a commitment to Christ to, to turn from my sin and go over the bridge of faith and trust in Jesus. I, and point number two is you say, well, you know, I'm really thinking about this. Can you give me some more literature, or can you meet me later for a hamburger and just talk about this? And point number three is, oh, I'm a believer. I've trusted in Christ. I want to please him. I want to honor him. And I said, where are you in that diagram? So I'm talking to these two young men, very bright guys. And I look at the guy that has a Christian background. I said, where are you? And he says, well, somewhere between one and two. I loved his honesty. I loved, he could have said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm. No, he said, no, I'm just not there. So I look at this other guy who's never heard this. I say, where are you? He says, man, I'm at two. I, I mean, Jesus did that for me. He died from the cross for my sin. I said, yeah. I don't do anything. No, you received it by faith. He said, well, I'm at two. So I gave him some material. I said, can we get together later? So, man, what? so I walked away weeping and rejoicing. Weeping because here's a, child, here's a young man who was raised in the church, who knew the things of the Lord, who probably went to youth retreats. He did go to youth retreats. went on mission trips. He told me that. And he just... Is apathetic. But I've rejoiced when here's a guy that's never heard it before. And he's saying, Wow. Wow. And then I thought about it, I thought, is, is person number one an example of apathy or indifference? Is person one an example of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21? See, mere professors are in extreme danger. That's what Peter says. It may have been better that never to have known than to have known and turned away from the Holy Commandment delivered to them. And I, I plead with you, if you're there, I plead with you to make your salvation certain. To say, I need more than just knowledge. I need to be convicted of my need for saving. I need to see the, the, the goodness and the beauty of Jesus. Point number three is that, is that the truly 
regenerate, born-again people will persevere until the end. They will. Uh, John chapter 10. I read it earlier. Let me just read one verse. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I love that. They follow me. John 8, 31. Jesus said to to the Jews who believed him, "If if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples. If. Colossians 1, Paul says he's reconciled us in his body by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if you continue in the faith stable and steadfast. Hebrews 3, we know we've come to Christ if we indeed we hold on our original confidence firm until the end. And see, the good news is because you have the Holy Spirit, God will bring you in. Here's 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So what 1 John says is that if these professed believers were really believers, they would have stayed with the people of God. But they went out and didn't come back to show they never really were part of the people of God. Now, new members class always ask this question. So I'll kind of give it away. I say to people, do Christians who profess Christ fall into sin. You ask that, and usually people, a lot of people just look down or look away. Because I mean, that's just kind of, well, there's a good chance I'm going to answer wrong here. <laughs> and the question is, do, Chris, do, do, do Chris, people who love Christ fall into sin? What's the answer? Yes, absolutely. Do they stay there? No. See? No. The people who love Christ fall into sexual sin. Yes. Do they stay there? No. Why? They have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you know what? He's going to make you more miserable than a Clemson Tiger at a Gamecock rally. You're going to be miserable. More miserable than a Libertarian at a Bernie Sanders rally. Miserable. You know? Do Christians struggle with substance abuse? Yes. Do they stay there? See, there's a pattern here. No. No. Because they have the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. so, So there's misery if you're a believer, and you have Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and you're involved in sin. There's misery there. Many people here can testify to that, including me. Misery. So, so, but you don't stay there because the Holy Spirit gets you off the mat. So so just application, very quickly, two, two things, and then we're done. 
One is, two extremes. There are two extremes here. And, and the majority of the Bernard report is this, that you're going to take this, you're going to go out, and you're going to find people, a, a, a child, a spouse, a parent, a loved one, a neighbor, and, and who shows seemingly little concern for the things of God, and maybe just gives verbal assent, but you just don't see the reality. And you're going to say to them, man, today we heard that you're probably not a Christian. You're going to go to hell. You don't know their heart. You do not know their heart. What you should say to them is this, you know, thank you for the chance to get to know you. And I, I, as I've just thought about this, um, the, the Bible says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And the Bible says that if you are a truly believer, you love God's people. And I, I, we go to church with me next Sunday, or, or, or can't we go to a Bible-believing church and get involved with God's people? Because that's just a sign of your salvation. I, I'm just concerned about that. I don't know your heart, but I love you. And then the majority report is me. I don't like conflict. I don't like them to confront people. My hero from the last century politically was Neville Chamberlain. You know Neville Chamberlain? Neville Chamberlain was a prime minister of England. He was a Christian scientist. Who, they don't believe the man is sinful, so it's hard to sit down and talk with Adolf Hitler when you think that if he has talked loud enough and long enough and sweet enough, he'll crumble. And so he goes, Hitler's gobbled up Czechoslovakia, and Neville Chamberlain goes to meet Hitler face to face, and Hitler's generals are waiting for Neville Chamberlain to say the weight of the British Empire is going to rain hell on your head. And they were getting ready to depose Hitler and get rid of him because they all thought he was a jerk. It's true. But Chamberlain saw something in the soul of Hitler that he liked. And so Hitler signed a little piece of paper, I promise to be a good guy from this day forward, hug and kisses Adolf. And Chamberlain gets off the, the plane in London waving a piece of paper that has, we found out later, uh, erasable ink. That's a joke. And he said, we have peace in our time. And I thought, if there had been a guy named Winston Churchill that went to Munich, we would not have had World War II. But anyway, Chamberlain, the, the great appeaser. Chamberlain, the great appeaser. So I'm the great appeaser. And, and so you go to people, and they haven't done A, B, or C, show no desire for the things of God, but you don't want to rock the boat. And somewhere back in the eons of their life, they made some type of statement, and you don't know their heart, but you're going to give them a pass. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. In fact, even as I'm preaching, I'm, everybody in this room who knows Christ is thinking of a friend, a relative, a sibling, and said, man, he needs to hear that. He should through your lips. And you say, you know, I don't have it all together. You know that. I'm far from perfect. On my best days, I'm far from perfect. But the Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, the Bible says that obedience is a sign of faith. I just, I just plead with you, where, where are you? I just don't know. I love you. you know, we're all messed up, but... That's your call. The other application is this. And I just say to all of us, make your calling and your election sure. Don't, don't depend upon familial faith or environmental knowledge or, or, or being swept along with the currents of your time. But say, you know, I've trusted in Christ. So I want to be pleasing to him. I want to follow him. 
May God give us grace to be the people who's called us to be. Let's pray. Lord, uh, uh, I, I, I plead, I plead, I ask that you would give us an understanding on this very difficult text. And uh, if, I, if I misrepresented it, just, just forgive me. But uh, Lord, help us to understand that, as Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And, and I thank you that you restore Christians who fall flat on their face Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you that when we are, as, as, as believers, when we fall flat on our face, we don't stay in the gutter because we have the Holy Spirit of God in us to, to comfort and convict and restore and exalt Jesus and make the Word alive in our hearts. Uh, so, so God, forgive, forgive us for misrepresenting the fact that you do call your people to a standard of holiness. And thank you. You don't leave us in the gutter. Thank you for that. Uh, well, I, I pray for our uh, different systems, whether it's our culture, whether it's our familial systems, that gives a, a veneer of Christian language uh, without really pushing the point of the glory of Jesus. Lord, let us talk about Jesus and the cross and Abba Father. And let us talk about the wonder of sins forgiven and the hope of heaven when we're together. Work in, and in us and through us, Lord. I pray. We do pray for those folks around us that we love so much and we want so much for them to know the Lord. Let us open our mouths. Lord, forgive me for being Neville Chamberlain when you want me to be lion-hearted. Forgive me for walking away and saying we have peace in our time when there's no peace because I don't want to have the conflict or the hurt or the, the upset that would disrupt my day. Forgive me. So God, work in our lives. Make us, uh, as a church, a city on a hill. Make us as individuals the light of the world or a light shining in the darkness because you're the light of the world. But let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let our light so shine that people ask us for the reason of the hope that we possess in our breast. Don't let us hide our faith under a basket. Let us put it on a candlestick and hold it up, up, up with love and dignity and compassion. Just let us love people, Lord. There's so many people out there who just need to be loved. So do that in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, church.